I often say that in schools without trust and without a democratic ethos, everyone is infantilized. Everyone is brought down one developmental level. And welcome back to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School as well as an author, speaker, leadership coach, and parent of two pretty awesome children. Every week I talk to leading educational thinkers and doers, and we do a deep dive into some of the challenges and opportunities that face educators today. And I offer up practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they'll live in. So it's a new month, and that means a new theme for our conversations. And it's a theme I've been looking forward to diving into for a long time, namely power and the ways in which power relationships define the schools that we're in. You know, power is not something we often talk explicitly about in schools. It's a complex dynamic that's a part of almost everything that we do and has a huge impact on any efforts we're making to change the experience of school for kids. And we are thinking about it. I mean, how many times have you heard people talking about empowering students or teachers which ironically is something we wouldn't need to do if we didn't disempower them in the first place. And the way power works in the world is changing as well, as individuals gain more and more ability and agency to create and share ideas and make connections. They're finding ways to influence what happens in the world in good and bad ways, right? I don't know if you saw a recent study from Common Sense Media that found 54% of teens get news from social media But of those, 6 in 10 say they're more likely to get it from celebrities, influencers, and personalities rather than from news organizations utilizing the platform. And that's just one example. So this month, the idea is to peel back some of the layers of power and look at what really happens in the interactions we have in schools. And to start that conversation, I got a chance to talk to Rob Freed, the author of several books, most notably The Game of School, Why We All Play It, How It Hurts Kids, and What It Will Take to Change It. And importantly, for me at least, Rob was the editor of The Skeptical Visionary, a Seymour Saracen educational reader. And those of you that hang around here for even a short while know that Saracen is one of my biggest influences and that his views on the world, and particularly of power in schools, is foundational to our work at Modern Learners. So in this conversation with Rob, we talk about how teachers and students can work within existing power dynamics, the difficulties of change because of power, and how we can recover our personal sense of power that schools in many ways take away. Now real fast before we get to our conversation, I want to remind you that I'll be co-leading five new Modern Learners Labs up and down the East Coast in November, December, and January. And the best part is that I'll be doing it with two really special educators, my friends Dr. Gary Steger and Homa Tavanger. Now these events will both challenge you and inspire you, and I think they're great opportunities to do professional learning for yourself, but also join a global PLC of others who are grappling with the most important topics in education today. So do me a favor and check out modernlearners.com slash labs real fast to see what we're up to. And think about joining us. I promise you, you'll find it time and money well spent. And finally, as always, at the end of my conversation with Rob, I'll be back with three things that you can do right now to think more deeply about power in your school community. And don't forget, if you like what you hear today, please head on over to iTunes and give us some love via review and a rating. 
And I hope you continue the conversation around power with us in our modern learners community. But for now, enjoy this conversation with Rob Freed. Thanks, everyone. Well, thanks so much, Rob. Really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation about power with me today. It's something that has been on my mind for quite a while. We'll talk more about Seymour Saracen, I'm sure, in a second. But the way he talks about power and, and relationships in schools are profound and I think important for educators to understand and think about. Your own writing, actually, in the game of school about power um, had some really interesting ideas as well. And I want to start with a quote from that book where you write that learning and power are inextricably linked. Powerless students often learn only that learning in school has little to offer them. And I'm wondering if you could just explore that a little bit when you say that learning and power are linked in that way. What exactly does that mean? And how does that kind of play out for kids in schools? Well, it starts uh, obviously before school, and I have a three-year-old grandson, and watching him learn is a wonderfully refreshing and inspiring activity. And so he is constantly trying to understand things and accomplish things. He has a battery-powered chainsaw, and he goes around following his dad, my son, and so um, when children get to school, they have often a wonderful variety of things that are attractive to them as learning um, encounters, but they also then become um, habituated to rules and regulations that often uh, work against that natural innate passion for learning. And some of those things are necessary. I mean, we have to have order and safety, but some of those things become ritualized and, and really depress some of that very strong um, natural learning agency that, that children seek and are eager for. So no battery-powered chainsaws, right? I mean, uh, uh, not very many opportunities for kids to pursue the things that they're really interested in. And I guess the question then is, so that's where the power comes from? That's where power as learners come from? Is that agency and freedom? It comes from having a relationship with an adult, um, a parent and a teacher, uh, a relationship with an adult who is really interested in how children think and how and what they learn and what they discover in having a relationship with fellow students so that they learn about differences and they learn to, to cope with difficult situations and they learn to make friends and um, having a relationship to materials, blocks and books and um, the outdoors. A, a really interesting example of this is something I used to try to um, advise my student teachers who were when I when I was at the Upper Valley Educators Institute in, in in New Hampshire and that was to spend the first two weeks whether they were kindergarten or high school teachers during the first two weeks of the school year uh, more than half the time or they should be talking about things that the kids know more about than they do in other words whether it's math or kindergarten or um, or books or nature, uh, the teacher 
should come at this full of questions and a desire to understand what children already know and what they're interested in. Um, what they learned this summer that's as important as anything that they learned in school last year. And I feel that that will get students thinking about their learning and realizing that their teacher is somebody who cares greatly about how they learn in the different ways that they do learn. I know that when kids come to school, they have certain expectations. And I think that there's a narrative about school that says when you come to school, basically you kind of sit down and you, you know, you behave and you wait to be told what you're supposed to learn and how you're supposed to learn it. And I guess that in and of itself is, is a power relationship that the teacher really has power over the curriculum and has power over he or she has power over how it's delivered, has power over how it's assessed. So, what balance of power between teachers and students? And I want to talk about other relationships in schools, obviously. Right. But what balance is there between teachers and students that you think is, is the right mix so that kids really do learn that learning is a wonderful thing and that they can you know, maintain their passions and that they have this, as Saracen would say, continued desire to learn productively? Well, very few teachers would be as sanguine as you are about the power that they have. They look around and they see all of the bureaucratic requirements and all of the rules and regulations and paperwork. And many, many of them feel anything but empowered. So power often and tragically gets translated into issues of control. The idea now obviously mostly discredited of better you control those kids or they will control you or you know it's always easier to relax rules than to impose them so you have to start out very strict and then you can the old don't smile till christmas uh, thing the power that teachers have is the, the power of their own of the things they love to learn of the things they are excited about, of the things that are happening in their day uh, before and during and after school that they share with kids. The power they have is the power of their example. Uh, Deborah Meyer says, children do what they see powerful adults around them doing. And if the powerful adult, in this case, the teacher, is constantly excited about her or his learning, bringing in things and being really curious and interested in how children reflect on and, and articulate what's going on in their lives, that power becomes a very empowering uh, vehicle and uh, instrument for teachers in their relationship to kids. So the other piece of that is that teachers need to create, and again, this is a Saracen quote, but teachers need to create those same conditions for their kids. So if they are powerful learners, if they're pursuing their passions, then it would suggest that those are the types of conditions and, and uh, opportunities that teachers have to create for students in the classroom for them to feel empowered, right? Yes, and of course, again, that's very difficult, particularly in working with children who's learning, who, with learning difficulties or learning deficits or things that, that, that they may have missed out that children from more fortunate or more highly educated families have received. 
So there's this pressure, understandable, to help students get accustomed to functioning in school, in a school environment. And that uh, often works against the spending of the necessary time and the play time and the exploration time that, that allow children to feel a sense of their own power and their own agency. So it's a real dilemma that many teachers face, almost all teachers face to some degree, and some find it overwhelming. Is it possible, do you think, to create a classroom that is basically free of those types of expectations or I think some people might even call them that is free of coerciveness where, you know, it really is about we have to get to this end result. And so therefore, I need to limit your ability to do the things that you want to do. I mean, is it possible to do both of those things, be really open and, and allow kids to pursue their interests and also get to you know the the places that we want to get them to um some teachers do it marvelously well um i remember a second grade teacher who used to uh, have every student had a tongue depressor and when and there were places for two tongue, tongue depressors that meant going to the bathroom. And they never had to raise their hand and say, can I go to the bathroom? They would notice that if, if they were, if the things were empty, and they would take their tongue depressor and a, and a fellow student, they would put it there and just go. And that idea for a second grader of being free to, to go to the bathroom without the embarrassment and, and asking permission and uh, uh, of all of that is an example of how teachers, skillful teachers, can blend learning of, of patterns and regulations that are different from discipline. They learn, they're eager to learn um, what the patterns are. They're eager to learn what the culture is um, that allow them to do, have more freedom. Um, so it is, there are teachers that do that really, really well. They are usually in schools that are have a more child-centered, less pressured to meet certain exterior ob uh, obligations. But there's always a tension between wanting children to gain mastery of skills that will, again, open doors for them, reading, obviously, and writing, and the desire to help students pursue the learning that excites them most at a particular time. It's a tension and, and the power you're, we're talking about is always within a tension between often good things that are not necessarily synonymous. You write in uh, The Game of School, you, you talk about teachers who co-construct rules and, and really ask kids for expectations so that teachers set expectations for kids, but kids also set expectations for teachers. Can you talk a little bit more about why that might be an important part of creating a culture where power is shared? Well, it's really at the heart of what democracy is, that, that power lies in, in those that are governed, not just those that do the governing. And it's never too early to begin to have that with students that can very easily get misconstrued. Several decades ago, there was a big democracy 
in schools movement. And I remember when it came to our town, Concord, New Hampshire, um, there was a, a, a Senate set up that, that students participated in that the faculty agreed to, but they could not make any decisions about curriculum. <laughs> so it was, it was about the power to try to uh, regulate um, peripheral things rather than getting to the heart of learning. So um, it can get really confusing, but um, obviously you want to have, uh, again, a balance between freedom and, um, and the kind of order and procedures that make it easy for people to avoid conflict or to manage conflict or to get things done. And this second grade teacher was all about procedures and very little about discipline. I know that uh, Deborah Meyer also has been quoted as saying something along the lines of, we want to prepare kids for a democracy, but schools are probably one of the least democratic institutions we have in our society, which I always found really interesting. And, and I mean, I remember in my own schooling, I never felt like I really had a say in what happened to me very much. And whatever I, I did get asked about wasn't really about the big stuff. It was more about the, the little things. I'm wondering about cultures in schools that are democratic. So you have democratic schools. I mean, you, let me actually give you, a, you, you prompted a, a story. I was the valedictorian of my junior high school in a very working class uh, area of Queens called Astoria. And I wrote a speech about the value of education and I was not allowed to give it. There you go. And the rationale was that when I, that I shouldn't talk about the value of education because for some of my fellow students who were graduating, uh, ninth grade was as far as they were going to get and they shouldn't be. Hmm. Uh, so the whole idea of freedom of speech, <laughs> even when you're a valedictorian, was um, undemocratically uh, censored in my case. I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, 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 that, but, but it is, right? It's interesting. And you hear stories like that all the time. You hear, you hear stories about kids who want to participate in ways that in real life they would be allowed to participate, but in schools they're not allowed to participate. And I wonder how kids deal with those kinds of mixed messages or mixed expectations in the context of those, those kind of controlling issues that are in schools. And I, I'm not sure if power or control is the right word in there, right? But mm -hmm. it's, it's certainly about control. Certainly, we want to have control over almost everything that happens in schools. We certainly want to have control over what kids do in classrooms. I wonder the extent to which that makes it difficult for them then to participate fully in society when they are given the opportunity to, you know, to speak out or given the, the opportunity to maybe um, do things that are against the, the norms in healthy ways, in positive ways. Well, children and of course adolescents live in a continuous struggle to define themselves and define the boundaries of the power that they have. When my oldest son was four years old and playing with Elmer's glue, 
I said, uh, put some newspaper down. Uh, I don't want you to spill it on the rug. And he said, I'll be careful, I'll be careful. And of course he spilled it on the rug a little bit. And so I swooped down and grabbed it and said, no, this time I'll really be careful. And I looked at my watch and I was late for work. And I said, no, I'm taking it away. Like I said, I would, that's the way it is. And he looked at me and said, that's not the way it is. That's the way you think it is. But that's not how it really is. <laughs> In other words, you're bigger than me, you're stronger than me, but right. you can't define reality. Right. And so it's when we try to define reality for children or adolescents, rather than work out the necessary compromises between freedom and responsibility, between personal um, pursuit of personal pleasure and, and obligation to community, that we help students learn how to navigate those same conflicts that they will feel on the job, in their marriages or relationships, and, and elsewhere. That story is a great example of every parent, probably, if yes. listening to this can, can, you know, it resonates for them, those moments when it's just easier. <laughs> it's just easier to take the glue away, right? Even though you know that there's a learning opportunity in there, right? And and yet we just say, no, I can't just deal with it right now. It's just easier for me to take the glue away. And that happens a lot in classrooms, though, too, because if we gave kids opportunities to have those learning moments, it would mm -hmm. be much more chaotic. It wouldn't be as easy, but it may be more effective if we did that. It may be better for kids if we were able at some points to just say, yeah, I'm going to let you kind of fail here. I'm going to let you kind of experiment to the point where it may not be in my control, but that's okay because I'm trusting you as a learner to kind of figure it out. How often or how does that happen in places where cultures are just all about that control and efficiency and, and just, again, you know, making sure that, uh, that it's, it's just effectiveness, you know, we just get through the day. Well, the dichotomy that, that we used to, construct for our um, would-be teachers um, was between, on the one hand, delivery of instruction, and on the other hand, constructive engagement. Right. So if, if, if we define our roles as delivering instruction to, to children, we avoid and neglect the idea that learning and meaning gets co-constructed in the interaction between teachers and students. I think I give an example in, in the book of, of, of a math lesson that, uh, arithmetic lesson that allows students to validate their feelings about math and translate it into mathematical symbols and mathematical uh, concepts. In other words, the, the, the goal should be helping students learn to navigate the difficult world of choices. And as I, as I said, the difficult conflict between personal freedom and responsibility. So we've been talking a lot about teacher-student relationships yes. in the classroom, but certainly in schools, they're filled with other types of relationships, right? We have we have administrators and teachers, we have teachers and parents, we have board members and leaders, we have all of those other types of, of relationships. Are they all the same in terms of the tension, the controlling aspects of them, or are some of them different, do you think, and are some of them more impactful, I guess, on what happens in classroom experience? What runs through all of them as a necessary ingredient is trust. Um, 
right. the trust that the principal has that the teachers are doing the best they can and, and asking for help when they need it. The trust that parents have that although their teachers may, um, may have somewhat different values or children in the classroom may use different language or different ways of expressing themselves, that the teacher will be working things out with them. The trust the teacher has that students are not there to defy or undermine her or his authority, but that they're striving for ways to negotiate, learn how to negotiate, learn how to, to earn the right to have more freedom. So uh, trust is essential. Where trust doesn't exist, where the powers that be do not trust school leaders to be able to help work with their teachers, but have prescribed curriculum and prescribed tests and, and everything run in, in, a, in a lockstep way, that lack of trust works its way down uh, to the extent that, um, you know, that kids in high school end up having to carry a pass to go to the bathroom. I mean, get treated like little children. I often say that in schools without trust and without a democratic ethos, everyone is infantilized. Everyone is brought down a one developmental level. Teachers are treated like teenagers by the administration. You know, uh, we can tell them 10 great things, but if we tell them one slight criticism, they, they, you know, they dissolve in tears. And, and teachers treat teenagers often like little kids because they are infantilized themselves uh, by the system. And often they don't, people don't understand it. And everybody feels that they are being put upon by somebody else, by those they work with and those who control them and those they control. It's, it's very easy in a school without trust for everyone to feel disempowered. As you were talking about that, I was thinking back to my own kids and uh, when they were going through school. And, and uh, I'm not sure that they felt trusted and I think that that led to kind of their acquiescence, right? That they, they just kind of not gave up, but they decided that school really was about just getting through it and really it was a game. And so your book, The Game of School, hits so many notes for me in terms of, again, my own experience and the experience that my kids have. And, and when I go and, and talk about school in that context, I rarely get pushback from people um, who suggest that it isn't really a game. They all go, yeah, it kind of is a game. You know, I tell stories all the time when I was a teacher of kids coming in and saying, hey, Mr. R, I need three points for a B. What, do I, what can I do, right? right. And, and how, few, how rarely it happened that kids came in and said, hey, Mr. Richardson, I'm, I'm really interested in what we're talking about in class today. Can you give me more stuff to do? Can you give me more stuff to read, you know? So the game of school, you wrote that about 15 years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, is it your sense that things have changed in that respect or is it your sense? I wish I could say that they have. Yeah. I think they have in a great, there is a greater understanding, I think, of the need of children to have agency and a greater respect for diversity in children. I think that's been a real improvement. On the other hand, the, uh, the, we are still locked into the accountability game in which uh, at its worst, teachers are required to spend their time preparing students for testing rather than helping them learn. And 
that's really tragic. So it's a mixed bag, I'm afraid. Um, there have been some real advances in understanding how children learn and some real problems in having to deal with extra imposition of standardized requirements that, that take power away from teachers and thus take it away from kids. Would that be the one thing if you had a magic wand that you would wave and say, no more standardization? Or would it be grades? Would it be, I mean, if I, if I pinned you down to one thing that you would change in the larger system, what would it be? You know, um, I would say um, to replace homework with igloos. <laughs> now, um, homework is the bugaboo of everyone, kids who have to do it, parents who have to insist upon it, teachers who have to grade it, and so forth. Uh, I would replace it with IGLUS, which stands for Independent Great Learning Outside of School. There you go. I like that. <laughs> so at the end of each day or, or period, you would ask students, what is it that you heard today or learned today that you want to know more about? And that would become a ritual. And the students would then have to think about what did I learn or not learn? You know, I, I, I really need to practice this or I really need to learn more about that or I wanna go online and learn more about that. That ritual of replacing the compliance environment of homework with a, an exploration of, you know, the responsibility on the part of students to come up with um, learning goals for themselves and, and to basically document that. Now, kids could get away with not doing that, but they get away with not doing homework or copying it on the bus from their friend. So right now, I would say the other thing, since I refuse to be uh, restricted to one, <laughs> would be to, to focus on performance, real authentic performance, uh, as the measure of learning rather than test. It, it does nobody any good to give kids a test at the end of a period or the end of a year. The only good use of tests is diagnostically, to find out what you need to know as we keep going on. But that's the use of testing, even tests that are designed by teachers, uh, often is, is uh, counterproductive, except for um, the the friend of mine um, who uh, gave the final exam on the first day of school and said, <laughs> this is in the biology class, this is the exam. And kids would slip it slyly into their pockets, he said, which was exactly what he wanted them to do. But, but then he could put on that final exam complex questions that went far beyond what these working class kids would otherwise be expected. So homework, replace homework with igloos, independent great learning outside of school, and replace testing with more, much more authentic ways of having students self-assess and the teachers then assessing learning. I think one of the other ones too, and this has given me actually a little bit of optimism of late, is the, the trend now, I guess we could call it a trend, or at least the conversation now about getting rid of grades. I think grades subvert a whole bunch of stuff that we want to try to do in terms of learning um, because it becomes a chase for the number rather than for the learning more about the things that, again, you might be interested in or 
um, need to learn more about. Uh, Mastery.org, we, we talked to Scott Looney on a podcast before where they're moving away from numbers on transcripts, going just toward competency-based types of assessments. And I know that you're doing something right now that is trying to build on competency-based for some students who may not have as many opportunities to get to college. Can you talk a little bit about the new baccalaureate program that you're, that you're trying to put together and, and how maybe that fits into this conversation of changing the power dynamic? Well, the compliance ideology that affects all students, honors students, uh, academic students, and, and uh, less well-prepared students, is really uh, detrimental to what they will need after high school. Uh, so our New American Baccalaureate is looking at ways to engage high school students who may not be pushed forward by parents and teachers, but are smart and articulate to um, engage with people from a nearby college and learn how to prepare themselves for a much different, much different opportunity than what they may have otherwise able to access. In other words, the kids, there are kids in school who are cherry pickers. They'll do terrific work for teachers they respect and who respect them, and they'll blow off other classes. So their GPA may have no relationship to their actual learning potential. So what we're trying to do is to get colleges that have excess capacity that are under-enrolled to, to engage with students early enough working class kids and non-honors kids early enough in their career so that they really start to take charge of their learning and focus on reading on their own and writing on their own and speaking and learning how to handle ideas. So that's what we're involved with at the New American Baccalaureate Project. And that really is about competency, right? It's really about showing competencies in certain areas instead of necessarily focusing on... Right, right. I, I think the, the liberal arts that we are aiming for has got to grow for the 21st century. We really have to form a union between the classic values of a liberal education, of critical inquiry and, and world conversations and great ideas with the creativity and, and workplace um, skills that are required for the modern economy, the ability to work as a team, the ability to carry projects through, the project-based learning. That should happen in high schools and it should carry over into colleges uh, as well. So one of my favorite quotes as we kind of begin to wind this down a little bit is, is from Seymour Saracen in, in this context where he says, existing power relationships are part of the problem and can never be a part of the solution. Um, and I think what he's what he's saying there is that it's not going to change. We're not going to we're not going to change really the experience of school until we we rethink power relationships, until we rethink the way that we distribute and act on power in all of those relationships that we have in schools, whether it's between, again, administrators and teachers, teachers and students, parents, board members, all that kind of stuff. Right. You wrote in the game of school, you said we can break out of the habits and patterns that confine us in the game and open up new possibilities for teaching and learning, but we can only do so with our kids as partners in the struggle. And I love that quote because again, it does 
suggest a level of agency that we have to provide to kids in the experience on a daily basis in almost every interaction that we have with them. You tell a number of powerful stories in the book about teachers doing that and working on those types of things. I wonder if there might be one that you could share that really captures this idea that we can break out of these patterns that can maybe plant a seed in some people's heads as to, well, so what can I do next? Is there one that maybe comes to mind or a new one that comes to mind that maybe you can talk about? Every teacher has opportunities every day for this. The, the example I started to give about the math lesson, which, which would be to sort of write five numbers on the board, one, two, three, four, five. One would represent uh, kids who love math. Two, represent kids who think math is pretty good. Three, that would be math is oh, no more or less than other subjects. Four is math is not really very good. And five is hate math. And uh, allow a whole class of fifth graders, sixth graders, seventh graders, eighth graders to write one number anonymously on a little piece of paper that represents how they feel and then pass them in the back of the room to, to two kids picked out because they seemed most resistant. <laughs> and the teacher would then um, guesstimate how many in the class are ones and how many are twos and how many are threes and four. And then the, the kids in the back would, would in fact tell them, the teacher and everybody else, what, um, what the reality is. And then um, the teacher would then divide the kids up into teams and they would have to reflect those real um, assessments of feelings uh, as graphs and charts and percentages and so forth. And then um, they'd find a way to gauge their feelings about math uh, on a regular basis. And um, the last thing that the teacher would do would be to give a card a three by five card where kids could say on one side, this is what I need from my teacher in order to go up one step from hating math to think math as well, I'll do the minimum, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other half, they would say, this is what I need to do in order to move up one step by Thanksgiving. And in that way, you are validating the feelings that they have, that they, they're actually, I mean, you're translating it into into math language, and you're giving the kids uh, a goal to shoot for that realizes that they and their teachers share responsibility for finding the best ways to get there. It really does come back to where we started, right? That it is about the relationships that teachers and students create with one another, and that basically the more that teachers can position themselves as learners, as, as really interested in kids' lives in ways that will allow them to improve or to become more interested in the subject matter. I mean, that's, that's really at the heart of this, isn't mm -hmm. it? The two slogans to carry away would be relationships first, task second. The relationships always need to be built before the task is done. And the other is when in doubt, ask the kids. Because that the very act of asking and admitting that you have doubt about whether this technique worked or this idea is any good is is a sharing of power uh in a, in this service of learning and that those things are really essential 
Well, Rob, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's a fascinating conversation. It's a very complex topic. It's something that every school has to be able to navigate and to reflect on. And I think you've given us a lot of starting points for doing that. So thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Sure. Um, just before we go, um, those kind of conversations in a school are terrifically important, but they have to be done in a way that builds trust and guarantees respect. I was in a school that had tried to form a parent-teacher-student uh, forum to try to improve the school, uh, to make it more democratic, and somehow they got convinced that to, to tackle smoking in school as their, <laughs> and it was the absolute worst thing they possibly could do because there was no way that they were going to uh, solve that problem and it tied them up for months in an unfair and unrealistic mis-exercise in democracy instead of the, the democracy that they perhaps were looking for. Well, thanks so much, Rob. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you, Will. I really enjoyed it. So what can you do now after listening to Rob's thoughts about power in schools and classrooms? Well, here are three suggestions I have for you. First, take a moment to examine what kinds of power you are being subjected to and the ways in which you use power over others in your role. Reflect on how power influences your relationships with students and colleagues, both in good and bad ways. Second, think about instances where you felt empowered to act and to decide. What made that happen? How can you make that happen? And finally, do some investigation into how often students are involved in conversations that have to do with decisions that affect them in school. If students aren't in those conversations, why not? Next week, I'll be speaking with Sylvia Martinez on the power of agency in the classroom, and I hope you can join me then. For now, thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone.